This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Yes, a new name, and a new website, notrainingwheelspod.com. Still the same high quality, still the same general type of content, just with a little bit broader reach. On No Training Wheels, we'll be talking with those people who make American bike racing so captivating. On this episode of No Training Wheels, we talk with Rob Laybourne, the race director for the Armed Forces Cycling Classic. And boy, did he have a lot to say. There was no way that I could cut this down to the typical 30-35 minutes for one of our episodes, so I decided that we have three chapters. Let's break it into three parts. There was so much solid gold content that I wanted to make sure that Rob had an absolute complete and total opportunity to tell us everything that he wanted to tell us about promoting a professional bike race and about the ecosystem that surrounds professional bike racing in the United States through the auspices of the National Association of Professional Race Directors, a advocacy organization that he's the president of. This was our first episode that was recorded on location, so you get to hear some of the sounds that are endemic to the headquarters for the Armed Forces Cycling Classic. I hope you enjoy. We're talking today with Rob Laybourne, the director of the Armed Forces Cycling Classic and a member of the National Association of Professional Race Directors. How are you doing today? I'm good. How about you? Doing great. We're going to have a, a conversation here, and we're dividing it into three parts or three chapters. The first chapter here is about the Armed Forces Cycling Classic itself. If people want to learn more about it, cyclingclassic.org is your website, correct? That's correct. Most of the audience here, most of the people who are traditionally listeners of this show are, are on the East Coast, and in, in a lot in Washington, D.C., and Maryland, Virginia. So a lot of people are familiar with what the Armed Forces Cycling Classic is now. But for those of us who aren't, lay out a framework for what this event has become. I think to do that, I'd like to start from where it began. And it began as a kind of a local regional race I wanted to, I envisioned to have uh, with a droopy start finish banner, some hay bales, a thousand unsold t-shirts and a handful of volunteers and some people that were willing to come out and race and help me put it on. That's where we started in 98. Uh, we were very fortunate to bring on some sponsors that helped elevate the event to a national level quite quickly. So getting the Postal Service on board in 99 was a you know, kind of a coup in a way, the Saturn Pro Tour and the National Race Calendar, which we've been on ever since, uh, with the exception of one year. Um, but that's a sort of a footnote, really. But uh, today, it's, uh, you know, we keep working towards kind of a vision that we have now of really trying to put on, a, you know, a, a well-run event, you know, promote our sport, celebrate it, bring teams in, have a great entertainment uh, product for for the region, and uh, so we, that's what we kind of work towards. You've got a two-day event. Saturday and Sunday in early June is the weekend of choice for you. Or late May. It'll be late May next year, May oh. 30th and 31st. Perfect. <laughs> uh, even better because temperatures start to get really hot in the area in June. There's one race on, on Saturday, which this year was Crystal City. Correct. And there's a race on Saturday, uh, Sunday, which this year <clears throat> was Clarendon. Correct. But on top of that, you also run a challenge ride. Correct. For the general community. 
Yeah. So over the years, you know, bringing on different sponsors and, you know, supporters of the event, we, uh, we added this, you know, challenge ride. It was, uh, when the air force got involved in, I think it was 2008, uh, they wanted to kind of have an event to rival the Marine Corps marathon or the army 10 miler. And so we created this challenge ride, which, you know, participants could ride. We closed the streets, you know, they ride for up to three hours now is the format. And that's how we added that to the, the race. We also had a, a, a race associated with that race in Crystal, ride in Crystal City. Uh, and then ultimately, when the CSC sponsorship uh, ran out, we combined the weekends to kind of become what we have today. And so there was a lot of evolutional steps over the last 20 plus years, and which, you know, to kind of create what we have today. So we have the the, the, you know, the, the challenge ride, the pro-am races and kids races, of course, um, expo. Um, and then we add on top of all that, the element of live broadcast. So that's kind of all the different pieces we have to bring together. And I think people need to understand that the challenge ride's actually challenging. It's not, it can be a, a casual friendly ride with friends, but I saw the Garmin data or the Strava data from a lot of friends <laughs> this year who, it was a 70-mile hammer fest at the yeah. front, so yeah. you can be challenged. So, right, and, and that's one of the things that we're going to be tweaking, I think, moving forward, because the, you know, the, the goal of the challenge ride isn't to offer something instead of a race, but we really want to create something that will show people that are getting involved in the sport that they can be part of something even more exciting, I think, which is racing. And so um, what one of the challenges we have, though, is we do have a lot of very skilled cyclists that come out and, you know, sometimes are ringers of corporate challenge teams and so forth and are really putting in like some monster efforts. And, and yeah, it's it's a closed road. They can come out and, and hammer, you know, if they want. But it, you know, it, there is a lot of wide ability there. And so we have to be mindful that, um, you know, there are some people that are pretty intimidated by a peloton of 50 guys zooming by at 30 miles an hour. So that's and it's not a race. You know, we don't have a podium. We don't have, you know, prizes. Um, and so what we're going to be looking at moving forward is trying to, you know, offer people levels to achieve, to challenge themselves, but not necessarily feel like they're going to win anything. We don't, you know, I, I, that's if they want to win something, then register and sign up for a race. The race itself, the two-day event that that is the Armed Forces Cycling Classic now, this is a professional-level event. There are professional riders, there are professional teams, and it's a professional organization that runs it, correct? Correct, yeah. And that's the focus. The focus is to bring the best mm. bike racers, the best community into Arlington, Virginia for one weekend during the course of the year and, and see who's the best on our roads. Yeah, so the, you know, when the race started in 99, again, having the, the pro race, you know, we had, it was a one-day crit in Clarendon, uh, bringing on the, the men's and women's pro teams, you know, at the time it was Saturn and Postal were the kind of the dominant teams. And so to be able to showcase them, that's kind of how we got our start. And that's really been our constant vision and an objective is to really showcase a quality uh, race with, you know, top teams from around the country and around the world. And we, one of the things that we have kind of um, sort of discovered now over the years is that really, if you look at the 
podiums that we've had over the last 20 plus years. I mean, we have national champions up and down, you know, on both the men's and women's side. And so, you know, really this has kind of become from, for the pros kind of a race to, to, to try to win. And, and so even this past year, uh, the winners being Eric Young and Ken, uh, Kendall Ryan were both former pro crit champions. So, you know, you, you don't win these races just because you're lucky. I mean, you have to be very skilled and, and, you know, we, we, we really work hard to get a, a deep competitive field, whether it's the top American teams or even international teams. The two races couldn't be more different. You've got <laughs> Crystal City, which has a very long, straight drag, huge speed, huge power. And you've got Clarendon, which is arguably one of the hardest criteriums in the country. It's technical, it's hot, and... It requires you jumping out of the saddle eight times per lap because of the odd shape of Arlington's roads. What do you think about Clarendon itself that draws so many people to this race? Because it's a race where not a lot of people finish. Yeah, over the years, it's it's changed. We, um, you know, one of the things that you know, we talked a little earlier before the interview about you know, the, the distance of the men's race, for instance, hundred K that's a, I think that's a, a distance that isn't that common anymore in crit racing. And, but it, I think, you know, as you and I discussed, it's probably something that should be more considered, should be considered more just because it does separate the wheat from the chaff. And so to be able to do hundred K, you know, on a crit and in particular on this, on Clarendon's course, Clarendon has, um, on the, for the men's race, there's five turns per lap. And so uh, Hilton Clark kind of dubbed it the, the, the race of 500 turns. Um, and so, you know, for, if you're a, a rider that's skilled at turning, uh, you'll do well. Um, but there's also the other element. It's on a slight, you know, kind of, um, I don't want to call it a hill, but it is on an incline. So, you know, if you're going out of the final turn, turn five, the finish line, there's a slight elevation. It may be 20 feet or something, but you know, when you're going around a hundred times that adds up. And so you're not just, you know, stepping out of your saddle, jumping out of your saddle to get back on. You're also going up a hill a little bit. So that that's, it's a challenge. So I, I did Clarendon this year. It's been a race that I've done a bunch. Uh, I was in the cat two field, so I didn't do a hundred K. I actually <laughs> think I ended up doing about 42 laps, which for me was more than enough uh, in that race. One of the things that I find to be interesting is the commitment that you have to, you know, you and a lot of other professional race directors have to gender equality and gender parity when it comes to pay. The women's field, the omnium, and the individual races pays out the same level as the men's field. Is that something that you are, are proud of? Is that a focus for you to make sure that riders of both genders are being paid the same for their work or is this just that's where we are you know how do you feel about this i mean i i'm all 100 percent, 120 percent for you know gender equality for pay for um you know access for anything you know i i'm certainly in favor of that uh, as a race director i think that you know as part of the national race calendar or the the pro pro road tour prt it's an obligation we have. Um, it's a requirement that USA Cycling puts on us to be able to have equal pay for both the men and the women. Um, and we do that. We haven't always had that. I think that as an 
a promoter is entertainment. I think that in some regards, uh, we should have a little more leeway to, you know, where our costs go. Um, I think that there are other race directors that sort of question that requirement only because there's other variables that come into, you know, what, how we make our decisions and what we want it, what we need to pay for. And just because two people are lining up in a race doesn't necessarily mean that they're providing all the same things. And so for racing, it's an entertainment product. And, you know, if we have half the number of athletes line up for a race, for instance, you know, they're not racing for the same thing. And so the odds of someone winning, you know, when the field's half the size of the same prize money is different, you know, and so uh, you also, you know, with the people that show up, the, the, the quantity of spectators is, varies for your events. And so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I don't, you know, we don't have any disadvantage by, I don't have expenses that I would otherwise cover other than maybe additional promotional things um, as opposed to prize money. Um, prize money that I put into it doesn't really affect my field much. Um, so it's a requirement that we do, but I don't really know that it's necessarily a big battleground that we have to take on right now in our sport. You know, we're, we're not talking about tens of thousands of dollars. We're talking about a few thousand dollars. So it's really not, you know, does that really, does a $5,000 prize list versus a $4,000 prize list, will that create more racers without bring more athletes out for the women's field than not? I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's, I don't, I don't have any data that would show me that. Um, and so, you know, I'm happy to do it. I don't have any problem with, you know, paying equal prize money for our events, but I think there are some, you know, considerations that people should, can, can, we could talk about in a wider um, conversation. And I think that's one of the reasons we'll get to this, I think a little bit later about our, um, professional association, the NAPRD, the National Association of Professional Race Directors. I think those are kind of topics and issues that we want to bring up and then talk about amongst ourselves and then figure out what a good position is or recommendation. What about the length of races between men and women? The women's race was 50K this year at Clarendon. Uh, the men's race was 100K. Uh, even if you look at the pro circuit, and I use pro in, in, um, in quotations <laughs> because... It's been a long conversation about what it literally means to be a pro in the United States. But if you look at the pro criterion this weekend, well, you know, there was 90 minutes at least for the men versus 70 minutes for the women's racing. Do you think there's a reason why we're doing that? Or is it just that's the way that tradition has had it, so we're keeping with tradition? Or is there a permitting issue? Is there a money issue? What's the cause of the shorter I, races? I, I think I'm away for this helicopter to fly over. And I think we should note that part of the, the joy here is that we're at the, the, the headquarters for the Armed Forces Cycling Classic uh, on the, uh, the banks of the Potomac here. So, Yes, flyover, helicopter flyover is known. Um, so I, I think the distances for crits and even for road races for, for men's and women's, I think they're, it's steeped in tradition. Um, I think that there's been a long history of the women's races being shorter than the men's. And what I... I I guess all I'll say is that we've never had a complaint. I, I don't have, I don't think I've ever had one of our athletes from the women's race come to me afterwards and saying that wasn't long enough. Um, and so, you know, 50K for the women at Clarendon, um, I don't think I've ever seen a rider come off that course feeling like they could have 
you know, would have been happy with 50 more laps. I don't think that's the case. So, I can, I can so, tell you from my experience, doing 8K <laughs> more probably would have been the end of me, but, you know. <clears throat> I, I would kind of put it back to the women. I, we This is, again, a tradition. We haven't got any feedback that says we need to make them longer. I think there are probably some crits that have equal distances, you know, men's and women's both being an hour. I think that's probably not... I, I'm just sort of on top of my head thinking that might be the case. But, you know, typically the crits that I'm familiar with around the country are like an hour for the women and an hour and a half for the men. That's kind of what, what I've seen. So maybe the pro crit, that was this that was Friday night, that was 90 for the men yes. and 70 for the women. If, if, I'm, if I'm remembering the announcers correct. Let's, actually, let's talk about criterium racing and, and American bike racing. Uh, one of the complaints or conversation pieces that I have on a lot of my rides are, well, America's just not focusing on the real bike racing, and the real bike racing being Tour de France. UCI. UCI-sanctioned races. And we're too focused on criteriums, or we're too focused on on short-circuit races, or but we're not gearing up to compete internationally. And there was something during the Pro Crit Championship that, that caught my attention while I was listening to the feed, was the comment during the women's race by the announcers about uh, Corinne Revere. Mm-hmm. She was at the race mm-hmm. by herself. There were no other teammates that she had. Mm-hmm. And the announcers kept saying during the course of the crit, don't expect her to do much during the course of this race. She's saving herself for the road race. I'm a bike racer. If you put a white line down on a road, I don't care if it's a criterium, a road race, a time trial, I'm going to race hard for it. Is there a perception that criterium racing is kind of a lesser race? So here's my take and thoughts on American racing, let's call it. So if you look at the, the world of bike racing in America, um, there's one way you can divvy it up. You can, you can segregate it between UCI-sanctioned races, meaning races that fall under the purview of the UCI regulations, so distance, uh, style, officiating, all that stuff. Um, so let's, let's talk about, you know, those kind of races. So everything, you know, Joe Martin stage race, for instance, is sort of an American race that now is, you know, kind of adopted the UCI sanctioning, which for that particular race, it just means that they run the race like they always have, but they use UCI officials, they um, have certain rules and regulations, but they also have exceptions. So in particular for Joe Martin, um, they're allowed to charge entry fees by the teams, which a UCI race is not able to do. They need to generate more revenue for their event to cover the cost of what the UCI sanctioning does. I think that there are other, uh, another example of uh, UCI racing is um, Winston-Salem is another UCI race, uh, Tour of California, you know, Tour of Utah, the Colorado Championship, and of course other races in the past. We've had uh, Tour of Missouri, uh, uh, Tour of Georgia, you know, many races like that. Uh, those fall into that category. We also have the American races, which are in particular made up of criteriums or other road races, could be stage races, that haven't adopted the UCI sanctioning. When I look at that history, as an example, our membership of NAPRD, the National Association of Race Directors, we make up over five, 
excuse me, 400 years of tradition, meaning some of the races have been around 30, 40, 50 years. Clarendon has been around, Armed Forces Cycling Classic, over 20 years. So if you add up the years that these events have taken place, 400 years, that's a lot of, of years. If you add up the years that UCI-sanctioned races have taken place, it's well under 50. And so I think that there's, there's a lot of people that want to, that believe that the international model, the UCI race, the Tour de France, the, the one-day classic, I mean, that's what we want here to have in America. That's not necessarily what plays well here in America. And I think that, you know, as a promoter and as a marketeer, I have to be sensitive of what I can sustain for the future. And a model that does, isn't sustainable isn't something you want to invest in. And whereas if you look at American racing and what makes up this 400 plus years of tradition in America, isn't necessarily what plays well in, in, in Europe. And so do I want to see these great classics in America, like the San Francisco Grand Prix or what Philly used to be? And those, those are great events that I would love to have here, but we don't have the market and the foundation for those events to be sustainable yet. And so I think that our governing body, our race directors, and our ecosystem, we'll call it that, right? The, the teams, the events, the sponsors, the, the media, the, the governing body, we have to recognize what works here in America and build on that success. And so, uh, you know, I want it, us to be mindful of what, what's working and what's not. So I'm sorry, what was the question? Oh, no, no, that was a great answer. <laughs> How about we, we dial it back here and talk a little bit more about Clarendon and Crystal City. What was it in the origin story of these events that you think drew professionals, drew the top flight of people to the event for the first time? So when we started Clarendon, you know, 98, it was, uh, we were lucky to get a couple of pros, you know, they were uh, licensed pros. I think there was a, a couple Shackley guys and a, you know, Breakaway Courier guy, which I don't think Breakaway Courier was a pro registered team, I think, but Shackley was. And, um, you know, they were, were, they came down because we had a $5,000 prize list. And, you know, back in the day, you know, that was a pretty good pay paycheck for some of these uh, regional racers. And so, you know, hey, come down, you know, I can make a thousand dollars, you know, racing on a weekend. And then in 99, when the Pulse Service was our sponsor and we elevated the event into a part of the NRC, the National Race Calendar, uh, our prize list went up. Um, teams were, you know, looking at these national events as, you know, showcases to give return for their sponsors. As we evolved with that, you know, early on, I think if you were on the calendar, teams would come. There weren't that many pro teams back in the day. Um, there were a handful, you know, five, six, seven teams early on. Um, as that evolved, you know, we were lucky to be on a very, on a good point of the calendar early on, right, being the weekend before Philly. Teams were coming in the region to go do Philly, and so it was not hard for a team to stick around for a few more days and come do our event. Uh, that's you know one of the reasons that we got some of the, the bigger teams that we did. In fact, it was one of the reasons that we got CSC, which is a whole other story. But um, you know, Jakob Pill, uh, and actually it was um, his New Zealand teammate, uh, and the name escapes me. It'll come to me in a minute. But uh, um, he had raced here as 
in, nine, in 2001 as a postal rider and was coming in town in 2003 for Philly and to do a, an appearance at CSC's headquarters in Fairfax and you know knew, knew about my event. It's like, oh, I'll jump in this race. It was a Julian Dean. So he emailed me. He's like, hey, I'm going to be in town. Can I do your race? And I'm like, sure. You, know, you ride for CSC. And he's like, oh, can I bring my mate, um, Jakob Pill, who had won Philly the year before? I'm like, of course. So I had these two CSC riders coming to Clarendon in 2003. And then the kibosh got put on it because the Philly event found out about it, was paying them to come do their race, didn't want them to do mine. So they ended up not coming. I got upset. I called CSC. Long story short, they became my sponsor the next year. So, but uh, so anyway, so teams knew about our event, and then see, when the CSC Invitational evolved out of this, the Clarendon Cup, um, you know, more pro teams came, and you know, and we also, when we were part of um, when we first started the the, the Crystal City event, um, the first year, or the second year we ran it. The first year it was a Criterium. The second year it was a UCI race. That was so I got my experience putting the UCI race on for two years. And that was one of the one of the, the experiences I had where I was looking at what we were doing and like, this really doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for me to spend all this money, close the, the road for all this time. I really only have people in this one area. I don't have the budget to really promote and build the other comp- parts of the event around here. I think it would be a lot smarter for us to just to do a crit. I can afford to do that. I can provide better return for my sponsorship which is what we did. Um, and so, but that experience gave me insight into working with teams, bringing them here. You know, we typically will reach out to teams well in advance to invite them, to work with them, provide housing, help with travel if they need support because teams have very, very tight budgets and so it's hard for them to come. And so uh, to be a successful event, to have a good field, you have to be mindful of the teams, what their needs are, what they're looking for, what kind of exposure they want, how, how they can travel, what they can afford. So you have to take all that into, into account. So we work hard, um, you know, working with the teams to, to get them here. That's, so that's... What's, uh, what's in the future? What's on the plans to keep people like Justin and Corey Williams or, or Eric Young or Kendall Ryan, the top flight athletes, to keep coming to... Arlington, Virginia, in the last week of May, first week of June. So it, it, it gets back to those same components, right? So you need to ensure that you're giving value for those riders for their sponsorship because they're only racing as long as they can provide value to their sponsors, right? Um, there are certain riders that kind of are just hired done, so you can you know bring in guys that are just kind of racing on their own, which that's a different story. But you know we need to continue to up our game. So, you know, we have to continue to, to uh, increase our production value, increase our entertainment value. Um, you know, we, we invest a lot into our live broadcast, and I'll call it a broadcast rather than a live stream. It is, you know, it's, it's produced by a television production, you know, company in Monumental Sports. Um, it's, it's hosted on their, their website, um, but it's essentially run like a regular live broadcast. So it's, it's not what you would traditionally see in a live crit live stream where you've got four cameras and racers going by, you know, we're really trying to produce a really high end entertainment quality event. And so for the teams to want to come, we're in a, I think we're in a major market. I think a lot of them have sponsors that want to get exposure to this market. If we deliver them 
a quality event. We run it well. We take care of them. They get value from the media standpoint, you know, from other other parts of our um, our promotional package. They're going to come. So speaking of giving benefit, your event is run for the benefit of a local charitable organization in TAPS. What exactly is TAPS? The Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors is a an organization that was set up some 24 or 5 years ago by a survivor of um, an Air Force wife. Her husband was, I think, killed in, a, in an accident. In going through the process, she recognized that there really wasn't a structure for grieving and for you know, families that lost military um, you know, family members. And so she set up this organization, and um, it, it turns out it's right in Clarendon. Um, it, it, we have, it, it was sort of a serendipitous connection we made a couple of years ago, um, we offered some of our corporate challenge teams the option to identify a charity for their fundraising. TAPS was one of the ones that was selected. And so we got to know them. And, you know, through that process, we decided to down-select our, our beneficiary to the, the ones. Last year, or this, this year was the first year we had as their sole beneficiary for the event. And the way that works, just to, is a clarification we you know the event it's the overall event is not a fundraiser it's not what we do we've identified them as our beneficiary partner and so if people that do the challenge ride uh, on saturday morning now um, they're invited to raise money for them if they choose to do so but there's no requirement and we also invite the corporate challenge teams the the companies that that bring in their employees to do the challenge ride we also invite them to set up you know, fundraising pages to raise money for them. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a voluntary beneficiary opportunity. Um, and we raised over $17,000 for them this year through the event. So we're very, very proud of that. But, but it's also, I'll say again, to back up a little bit, ever since I started the race, I mean, even year one, we had a beneficiary. So we've always, for me personally, it's just part of my the fabric, my DNA. I, I always want to give back to, to some community in some fashion. And so, you know, we had a silent auction the first year. We raised $150 for, you know, some um, bone marrow donor registry program. Over the years, you know, we've probably raised over $150,000 for uh, various charities. So we're very proud of that. When we did our episode prior to the Armed Forces Cycling Classic, where Julie Kalitza, Zach Allison, Whitney Allison, and Kristen mm-hmm. Arnold were a part of it, Julie now works with some of the guys up in Pennsylvania to help promote events, and including Reading, Radsport, oh, yeah, and sure. uh, Scranton, Electric yep. City. She made the comment that one of the things that a lot of race directors are doing nowadays is trying to pair events with social causes, civic organizations, civic activity groups. Do you feel as a professional race director that that would be or is a benefit to your event? So, I mean, the, the connection we have with TAPS, again, it was it'd been an evolution. We, when the Air Force was involved, um, you know, we, we actually initially, we, we raised some money for the Saul Raisin Fund. Saul Raisin was a former pro racer that had a traumatic brain injury, and so... The military TBI is a big deal, and so we helped them, and then um, that evolved to support the Air Force Aid Society, and then the Air Force Association Wounded uh, Wounded Airmen Fund we supported, and now you know TAPS. But uh, you know those kind of decisions, whether you're going to support you know a local community 
bank of some kind or you know uh, um, a nonprofit. You know, th- there's there's benefits in it because they have outreach and they're going to bring community people in. Um, you can you know, there's a cause. I think you know a message that you can help use your platform for. Um, it's got to work both ways though, right? So you need to that beneficiary needs to get some value out of being a part of you and, and vice versa. Um, it, it, it's a case by case thing. You know, we, it, to me, it's just important to do that. And that's why I do it. I don't necessarily do it because, you know, I'm trying to create a necessarily, you know, the a overall benefit the event. So I, there's, I think that does happen. I think it can happen. Um, but that's not, again, that's not what's driving me necessarily. Thanks for joining us on this episode of No Training Wheels. During the course of this episode, I did make a mistake that needs to be corrected. I erroneously stated that the Pro Criterium Championship for the men was 90 minutes long. After the interview was done, I realized that it was 80 minutes long, so I apologize for that mistake. Please stay tuned for the next part of the interview with Rob Laybourne coming out in a couple of days. In part two, we're going to talk more about the professional part of running a professional bike race and explore what it is that are the issues that he faces as a race director and some of the lessons that he's learned going from a small race with a droopy banner to this big professional production with moving cameras and jumbotrons and broadcasts and a whole ton of other things. So in the meantime, Please like, share, subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you get your podcast. Until next time, see you out on MacArthur Boulevard.